Okay, so welcome to episode 10 of Thelma and Tom Look Left. And uh, yes, here we are again, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. We've got a really uh, good guest, John McDonnell. I'm really excited about talking to him. Uh, uh, So that'll be in part two. In uh, part one, me and Thelma will have our usual chat. Uh, So yeah, anyway, hello Thelma. Nice to see you again, and uh, hope you're well. Yeah, hi Tom. Yeah, I'm really well and uh, looking forward to this episode and uh, and talking to uh, my former colleague and friend, John McDonnell. Um, it'll seem a bit strange, actually, with knowing, uh, knowing the guest as well as I do, but uh, really looking forward to a chat with you and a chat with John. Yeah. Yeah, so when you, when you worked with John, tell me, I mean, before he gets here, let's talk about him a bit. Um, <laughs> did you, did you, <laughs> did, did, I mean, were you like mates? Um. Uh, we, well, we we are good friends uh, now. Um, uh, well, I hope he'll agree with me saying this when it comes on. I consider him a very good friend. Um, but um, it, it's a very strange world in politics, you know, when you're you're kind of appointed to a role, um, and it all happened very quickly. And uh, I didn't know John well at all, but you do work as his PPS. I work very closely with him. Um, um, and the, the one of the great qualities about John um, is his professionalism. Um, and um, I, I always felt um, the, the discussions we had, uh, how I tried my best, you know, in, uh, in, in my uh, kind of inexperienced way, I suppose, as a PPS, um, to support him and the Treasury team, um, was always, always handled very professionally uh, by John. And he led the team uh, really, really uh, kind of, well, it, collaboratively, um, he's a listener as well, John, um, as well as we all know, uh, expert um, uh, in uh, economics and, and in, in politics generally, um, but, but a very uh, warm person to work with. And I found him, I, uh, yeah, I did find him very, very easy to work with, um, but, but it was always on a you know, very professional level um and uh, and and but it was a very collaborative team you know it was um open discussions and people's contributions were always valued so yeah it was a privilege privilege to be in that role for that uh, couple of years yeah, I was always amazed. I know I've I've gone off topic straight away. I'm really sorry, Thelma. <laughs> no, it's okay. Go, it's okay. It's <laughs> okay. Um, I, I I was always amazed at um, looking at it from my point of view, which was you know right out there, nothing to do with anything. Uh, yeah. uh, some of the really good stuff that came out of that uh, those early days. Well, right through as far as I was concerned, really. But you know, you you, you just because when. It felt like a total fluke in a way that the left even got near to power to me. And, and, and then when they did, and I was thinking, this is going to be, this is really going to show us up as, you know, amateurs. But it wasn't like that at all, was it? They were really, no. really on it. And I, yeah, I, yeah. I was really inspired by that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was the point that, that there was um, consultation, there was research. Uh, there was there was reasoning and rationale behind the policies, and all of it costed. It, you know, often it's thrown at the left. Certainly was during that time about how you're going to afford it and all this business. Well, we had what we call the grey book, where it was all budgeted for um, and costed, um, and those policies. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that we've got uh, the Tories. 
uh, taking on board during this pandemic a number of the policies that were in that 2017 and 19 manifestos. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that is, uh, I think that is quite interesting. Uh, quite oh, interesting. Absolutely, it is, and I mean, a classic example of that this week with the with the football, wasn't it? And you know, I mean, we're going to talk about that later with John, but it was mind blowing yeah. how quickly they jumped in to intervene yeah. intervene in that. Having told yeah. us about two weeks ago that the, really the best way to get a result was by being greedy. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just it just shows the power of collective action, though, doesn't it? Um, and the fans taking that action mm. and the general public outrage. Um, and I, it just depresses me slightly, though, that we can do that over football. And yet when we've got child poverty going through the roof... There isn't that same well media coverage for a start, or, yeah. or or that collective action, and that's why I do what I do um, and continue in politics because I just honestly feel so strongly that you know when people get together, um, and and you know don't get me wrong, the fans for football fans and the community, the things they're doing. I mean, the fans of food banks and all all of that fantastic work in the community. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm always with when we talk football. I'm always a bit nervous because I'm not an expert on football. But you know, I must share a lovely memory about football because you know I'm from Manchester originally, and one of my fondest memories was walking to uh, we're Manchester United supporters. And my dad was an ardent supporter, and he often used to take me on a Saturday afternoon, and we'd walk towards the match, and we'd stand at the Stretford end, wow. which was the the roughest, toughest. It was when George. Best was playing, um, wow. uh, yeah, Bobby Charlton and all of that, Nobby Styles, and um, I can remember going with my dad. But that walking to the match, um, that sense of community um, uh, and and that excitement um, of the game. Um, when I was thinking about it yesterday with this Super League and the importance of, of football for, for the community and the working class and how I felt as a little girl going with my dad and standing there, you know, at the Stretford End, it brought back just lovely memories, really, and how That's important a fantastic, it is. fantastic story. I mean, I can't imagine... I mean, compare that to now where, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan. I've been to the mm-hmm. ground yeah. twice, that's all, because you can't get tickets... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, 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 and you could just rock up there with your dad. I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he eventually, when he got a bit older and I wasn't going, he got a, a season ticket and a seat. Um, but we just used to stand there, you know, and I was only a small child uh, leaning against the bars, you know, and yeah. uh, and uh, propping myself up. And sometimes he'd lift me um, onto the top, you know, so I could see better. And yeah. um, it just... Uh, yeah, and, and the fact... The pra- you're absolutely right that the tickets were affordable because we didn't have a lot of money. No. Um, and that's what's wrong, I think, now. That's what's wrong. It's not ac- accessible to, to all, and it should be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anyway, yeah, we, like I said, we'll, we'll have a chat to John about football. Yeah. I don't know where he's at on it all, but it'd be very interesting to find out. Oh, I know, I uh, know he's into his football. <laughs> I don't even know what team he sports, so I'm looking forward to finding out that too. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, another thing that close to our hearts, Thelma, was uh, there's still rumbling on discontent and all sorts of crap going on at Pimlico, Pimlico School. Um, I get so cross about this, Selma. I, I, I know I'm a bit mm. out there on education mm. and, and extreme in my views on it, but the way they treat these kids, it, it mm. drives me crazy. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know. 
I, I just, uh, yeah, where do we begin with this one? Um, I, I mean, what I remember, obviously, I have to speak from my own experience as a head teacher, that one of the things I was really proud of, and I know a lot of head teachers and teachers are, was that we had a school council. And um, and I, I used to, uh, when I could, uh, have a weekly meeting with, with, uh, with, with the children. And we started as young as four, having a rep from each class. And uh, they'd squash into my office um, every week and, and they'd raise the issues on behalf of their class. Um, and it could be what was going on at playtime. It could be it, it could be about school educational visits. It could, it could be about anything. It could have been about the free fruit that was given out in the morning and all, all of that. Um, but they loved that, and I loved listening to them because they had they had their pupil voice, as we called it, and and they were representing their well their class community, and I thought that was such an important uh, life skill and such an important experience on so many levels. So it makes me so sad when I see a situation arise where the pupils or students seem to be in conflict with the head teacher when they are raising very important issues to them, which is whether, and cultural issues too, in, and, uh, too, and faith issues in terms of wearing the hijab, whether they have their hair in Afro style, um, and, and the question of whether the Union Jack, although I believe that now has been withdrawn, that the Union Jack is flown outside uh, the school at all times. Um, and I, I, it just saddens me that a relationship um, is so poor that a head could not have had those students in their room or, you know, in, in a classroom in the school and and could not have listened to their viewpoint um, and reached some sort of... Well, I don't think there should be a compromise, actually, with this. I think my view is that the pupils are right uh, <laughs> to want to wear their hair what, whatever way they want. And, don't and get me if, started. I'm fuming. Uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's... Um, uh, as long as it's done respectfully, of course... Um, that those students and pupils had a right to raise those issues and have a right to wear their hair um, in, in the style they wish. Um, so that's my view. And I just think it's a bit sad that there's been a breakdown in relationships to that extent um, and that there wasn't a kind of school council voice there that I was used to working with um, to, to get the, the representation and that dialogue going um, and, and as I say, a part of a life skill uh, I mean, to I negotiate mean, the situation. Yeah, I mean, how, how can anybody... You'd think if anyone looked at this and they thought, right, we can have a head teacher like Thelma, uh, who really <laughs> respects the kids, really yeah. communicates with the kids, really gets the kids on side, really does goes the extra mile to, to help those kids become cooperative members of, the, of our society, or we can have a head teacher that just completely wades in there no respect whatsoever for these kids and what they think and lays down the law oh anyway i better stop yeah. them i'm going I'll, I'll be i'll be <laughs> no you need to keep calm tom, keep tom i do keep calm. i know but this is i i really yeah. it did for me when i was a kid thelma it knocked me for mm. six when when mm. they started treating me like well, that. well 
I, I always think, I, I mean, certainly, certainly, I'm not pretending for a moment, and there are wonderful head teachers out there who wouldn't dream of behaving in that way at all with their pupils. They are absolutely, absolutely sound, and I have massive respect for many, many head teachers. Um, but some, you, you do wonder what the agenda is when, when they do behave in this way. And um, I, I'm certainly not pretending to be, I was perfect, but, but certainly I think the fundamental is to have a positive relationship with the students and that mutual respect is really really important um uh, and so i th i think yeah I, I think it's been um i think it's been quite a sad episode and i do yeah. hope that yeah. um it will be resolved amicably yeah 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 we'll come back to that i'm sure <laughs> uh, I, i'm i'm gonna stop talking about it thelma uh, <laughs> the last the last thing I've got on my list here, which is that uh, I find this really interesting, uh, that uh, Boris Johnson spent £2.6 million doing up his presidential room in Downing Street to make his presidential-style announcements to the electorate or the press or whatever. And I think he did it once. I don't even know if he did. I can't remember. I wouldn't watch anyway. But... Now he's decided he doesn't want to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, what are your thoughts about that, Thelma? I mean... Yeah, I, to be honest, I, I haven't been following this, but, but it's another part, another example of when he, he and his partner have, have done out their flat at, at, um, in Downing Street at number 10, and then we're going out for, for, for getting some funding for it. Um, but this, the, yeah, this is another example. Um, and I think, hasn't Allegra Stratton, who's his, who was his press person, has now been put onto another agenda? Yeah. Uh, which is the climate conference, isn't it? That's right. About, yeah, yeah uh, uh, in the autumn. Um, so she was responsible, I think, for coordinating that. I could be wrong, but... Um, but it's almost like, you know, that amount of money, what was it, two two point six million, yeah, did you say? Yeah, yeah. Um I I, I mean that how what difference that could make to a community, you know, in terms of well, the food bank or well, you you name it, the the list of things that we've got that, that different struggling communities are in need of. And that two point six million to well, do a, a really a copycat Trump really, wasn't well, it? Well it, it, it was, was a, a story, it was a copycat <laughs> Trump. That's exactly what it was, Selma. And I just yeah. think uh you know, uh oh. Hey, yeah, <laughs> this I is know. a complete wind up for me. Just, this podcast, well, it's just, <laughs> it's just it's, well, it's, the, it's the kind of priorities, isn't it? And it's the frittering away of public money. But the thing I think you're going to get me wound up in a minute here. But the thing, <laughs> the thing that gets me is the way a lot of the public just when when there is outrage expressed, a lot of the public just go, oh well, yeah, you know. But can uh, you imagine if if Labour did that, you oh. know, or or anybody on the left? that you know you just yeah. think uh, what what is going on with the public yeah. that they just seem to get away with this it's, and, it's and of course we could go on to the we could do a whole program on the cronyism and the dodgy contracts and and, and on all of that that just seem to be oh well that's yeah that's yeah, bullish, yeah you know it's, it's kind right. of it's kind of, <laughs> But but I, not, I, I not if you're it's... a public sector worker or a nurse on the wards at the moment, and you know, and the pay offer yeah. they've been 
oh, you know, it's just not right. I just think anyway. it's interesting. Um, uh, last week when Kate was saying about how our country seems to be going in the opposite direction to every other country with the... Uh, with the yeah. nuclear thing, yeah. and and yeah. in a, in a way, it's the same with these flags. You know that. Yeah. That yeah. All sensible countries in the world, and I don't know how yeah. many there are, but there are some. They <laughs> they kind of worked out that it's neither here nor there. You can't eat flags, mm. you know, and you can't enjoy flags are just a symbol of of uh, some mm. kind of ideology. They they're not really anything, um, mm. and 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 so what do we do? When, especially when Trump's burnt out and gone and the American people have decided they've had enough of that stuff, apart from 30-odd yeah. percent of them, of course. But, you know, what do we do? Oh, we bring out the flags. You know, today I saw yeah. a guy, a Tory MP, I believe. I didn't check it out, but I can't imagine he was in Labour, but you never know these days. Um, <laughs> and he's saying that he, he, every school should have a flag outside yeah. and, and the kids yeah. in the school should take it in turns every day to, to raise the flag. And I'm thinking, mm. I, what if they'd have tried to make me do that when I was in school? I mean, I would have just... Yeah. I, I would have been forced mm. to mm. take a stand. But anyway, there you are. Mm. This country does seem to be... Sometimes you just think, why are we, going, why are we swimming upstream here, you know? Life can be so yeah. much better. Yeah, especially when I think what I'm feeling optimistic about, um, just calm, calm you down, Tom. Yeah. Um, but, but <laughs> Please do. Ha, ha, how things are going in America yeah. compared to the horror that, that it was a few months ago. It seems to me that Biden is, is working cooperatively with the left and Bernie Sanders uh, and co. Um, and we're seeing some really positive policy decision making yeah. there um, that's going to improve the lives of, of the most vulnerable. And I think that is... You know that that gives me hope. I mean, I wanted Bernie to to, to be president, but what yeah. I'm seeing is is the common sense approach um, from Biden and and the um, kind of uh, compassionate um, approach as well uh, of healing the country and and supporting the most vulnerable. So, you know, I I think that is. Um, uh, something for optimism, and I'm just uh, very sad that we we don't seem to be doing that in in our country either. Yeah. With, well, with Labour or um, all the Conservatives, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think, you know, there, there's room for uh, coalitions, and it's it just doesn't seem to be happening in our in our. Yeah, country I, I at wanted all. to talk to you about that. Maybe we can get round to it in a bit, but I, the, yeah. I'm not imagining it, am I? Biden's actually doing some good stuff, isn't he? Yeah, he is, most definitely, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, well. thought, I, I was getting that impression as well. And, and you just don't expect it, do you, really? But it seems no, to be happening. No, no, you don't. It'd be quite good to get somebody um, on one of our episodes that's uh, been involved in American politics. I'd be, yeah. I'd be, really, in, I'd be really interested to talk to somebody... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, who, ..who's been in there. Perhaps we could do a bit of research, see who we could invite, because yeah, I, I would yeah. be very interested in a conversation about what's happening with American politics at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. OK, good. Well, that was lively, wasn't it, Thelma? I, 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 I'm, <laughs> Are you I'll, feeling I'll a bit calmer a... now, Tom? <laughs> well, slightly. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably be all right in a couple of minutes. Um, yeah, that was good. <laughs> I enjoyed that, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, just how it goes. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a, a, 
you know, that emotion is there for a reason, you know, that if you, like you were saying, if everybody goes, oh, well, that's okay, never mind. Oh, well, yeah. oh, just do it, you know, just do yeah. it. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, need, I think, it, I think anything top. in politics or socialism, you need to have that anger there, really, that flame of anger. I think Tony Benn be, called about, didn't absolutely. he? Absolutely. It has to be that. You've got to have that passion there. It keeps yeah. us going, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. All right, right, well, we'll see you in a couple of minutes for part two with our guest, John. Okay, thank you. Okay, welcome back to the podcast, part two, and uh, I'm really pleased to be able to welcome our guest this week, John McDonnell, MP, and uh, member of the SCG, and uh, played a massive part in the um, Jeremy Corbyn years. Uh, that's ridiculous because the Jeremy Corbyn years are still going on, but you know what I mean, 2015-2019. Uh, Big fan of yours, John. A couple of times I've had a wobbly about you, but most of the time I've been right with you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so really so happy to meet you, mate, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on our podcast. Well, it's a privilege to, go, to come on this increasingly popular podcast, isn't it, really? It's doing it's the okay. It's podcast that you're going to get, isn't it, soon? <laughs> That's what we're aiming for, John. Um, anyway, I, I know that you know Thelma really well. You used to work together in the in the House of Commons, I think. So just pass you over to have a chat to your old mate Thelma, and then we'll make a start on asking you all these questions we've got for you. Yeah. Hi, John. How are you? Very good. Very good. Yeah. Missing you as my PPS. Yeah. Well, do you know that. That was going to be one of my first questions about what was it like having such a wonderful PPS for two years, you know? <laughs> Andy MacDonald did a very good job. <laughs> and then Karen Lee. And then yourself. <laughs> no, I, Thelma, you're much missed. You are much missed, oh. I tell you. <laughs> so um, how's life? Are you managing to get any time to yourself these days? It's pretty hectic. I tell mm. To be serious, the, I think every Labour MP at the moment, in terms of the demands within their constituency, we're almost flawed, really mm. are. You know, the COVID pandemic mm. has hit every constituency pretty hard. Not just, you know, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was still in shadow chance there. And then when I stood down and literally, and I don't think this is unusual, literally I was contacting individual care homes to make sure they got PPE, and most of them hadn't. It was just literally, I'm on the phone, my whole team in the office working through. Then after that, it was trying to make sure that we got the resources in for vaccination, that sort of thing. But also, remember, I've, I've got Heathrow in my constituency, mm. so we immediately had mass layoffs. And then, I'll, I'll try and control my language, but I'm mm. so angry about it. Then what we had is Heathrow Airport, British Airways, all, well, Heathrow Airport tried the fire and rehire tactic, mm. attacking everyone and then cutting their wages by about a third. 
Yeah, and only taking them back on if they sign new contracts. But in addition to that, it was undermining terms of employment. Now, we had a, we've had disputes, and we've partially won that dispute with Heathrow Airport, the direct employees, and we partially pushed back British Airways. But it still meant large numbers of people losing their jobs or having their wages cut because of furlough, of course. And in this area, well, you know what London's like. House prices and rent mm. rents are so high. If you slip up at all instead of a part of your income, you're struggling immediately to pay the mortgage or pay the mm. rent. Mm. And so I've been involved in all the renters' campaigns against evictions and things like that. And every, I, you know, the staff I've got, we're all working from home, but the staff in my team, they're absolute you know, heroes, saints, to be honest dealing with individual concerns, dealing with people in the most desperate circumstances. And then remember, because I'm a multicultural constituency, large numbers of um, our community were trapped abroad as well, because a lot of um, workers who've of Indian origin, who've now who worked at the airport, retired, and then what they'll often do is spend quite a bit of time back in India, visiting family and things like that. So we, we had hundreds stranded in India trying to get them back mm -hmm. and the government were appalling they were absolutely dreadful other other countries um, were had sufficient air, airlines to help them they had airplanes going out there even military at times but ours was just the organization was abysmal eventually we got it sorted but it's been dreadful and I've also we've got this I'm going on a bit here. Sorry about this, but no, it's no, just no. a flavour of what's going on. We've also got this situation where I've got a large number of refugees in hotels around the airport. Um, and again, I've had the problem. This is classic home office. You know what it's like. We've had the problem where the refugees have been in. The, I've got 450 still in one hotel. Um, and the contract is not with the hotel to provide them with food. The food is brought in. So we've had real problems about the food not being enough. These are families, you know, and they've been so they're so lovely, the people trying to help each other. But again, just that basic breakdown in the contract, just the supply of food has put real pressure on them. Now the Home Office is moving them out, and I'm trying to make sure that they go into decent properties. All of that, the, the burden has just been in extraordinary on my staff. So it's been hectic, really has. And people are suffering out there, you know. They really are. And I can't, I can't, you know, I have nothing but admiration for the health workers, the carers, the, the council officers that are helping us and all of those elements of just mutual support, that mutual aid that's going on. But I just think the administration by... Johnson of the whole administration of the just the basics to support people during the, the certainly the early stages and even later now in terms of financial support has been dreadful mm -hmm. and it's put real hardship on people you know well that it, you know just listening to you there John it just is so important what you've just been saying because obviously I only had that two and a half years in parliament but what you've just been saying doesn't get out enough about the work of MPs and the casework uh, for the MP and the staff. And I think what you've just been saying is so powerful on so many levels because MPs at the moment are getting such a, generally, getting such a poor press and the criticism, as mm. you know, John, 
Um, and I, I, you know, echo, no matter how many criticisms I've got of some of the things that happen in Westminster, um, I do always emphasise that there are so many people like yourself um, who are dedicated to their constituents and, and to the work that, that needs to be done, uh, and even more so during this pandemic. So I've got immense respect for you, John, with, with what you're doing and, and the care that you have. I mean, that is, that is the thing. I think a lot of people don't realise with MPs that the sin, sincerity of, of what they're trying to do uh, and commitment to, to the communities as well um, people have no idea the level of casework and that I had that before even the pandemic so I can't imagine what it's like now. Well it's the people who do it are my staff really. Helen Loder who's my office manager runs the office. I always say she does the work and I just speak the language, I speak the yeah. words you know. I'm sure, but... I'm sure, I'm sure that's not true but one, one thing <laughs> I, I, I did want to ask you though John, in fact despite all this that you're doing with your different different campaigns and um obviously supporting uh union action and uh you know kind of uh the the, the work you're doing in Westminster in the constituency all of that but on top of everything else over this last year and I know when you stepped down as shadow chancellor you said to me oh no I'm going to take a step back etc and there here we have claim the future a whole new project that you you've you've launched and is 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 doing some great policy development and um i've attended myself a, a few of the events do you, do you do you want to just talk to us about that yeah. okay again what when i stood down as shadow chancellor we we were at the beginning of the covid pandemic and a large number of people we're talking about where do we go from here? Um, both, you know, the two factors were one, we'd lost the election. So where's the left go from here? And then secondly, we're hit with this pandemic, which is impacting upon so many people's lives. So again, how, how do we get through that? And the discussion that was taking place was what sort of, what do we need to do immediately to support one another? So what are the immediate measures to get us through this pandemic, but also, learning the lessons of 11 years of austerity, where do we go from here? And the discussion was, what sort of society do we want to create coming out of this pandemic? And I, I was, at the time, I was doing a number of speeches and I was using the anal analogy with the Second World War. I resented Boris Johnson trying to drape himself in the flag and be a, you know, this image of him as Churchill, which was laughable, really. And he was trying to use that sort of, solidarity of the second world war you know we're all in it together etc for his own purposes to build his image up as Churchill and what I reminded him and I did it in a number of articles and speeches uh, what I was trying to remind him of is actually the real lesson of the second world war is that no matter when it was at its darkest period um, in the early it was really 1940-1941 that period when it was Basically, Britain was isolated. Not, the Nazis were romping all over Europe, and it looked pretty bleak. Even in that dark period, progressives came together, and they wanted to talk about what lessons there were from the 1930s, what lessons they were learning from the war, and basically what, what the future should be. And it was socialists and progressives that came together and they looked at the 1930s and they said, never again, never again will we allow our country to go through that level of what was austerity effectively. 
but then also they then started dreaming and then discussing and then planning the society that they wanted to create after the war. And what came out of that is the most radical Labour government under Attlee and the welfare state that actually the whole paradigm of the, the ideas behind the welfare state dominated political thought then for the next generation for at least 25, 30 years. So the discussion then I had with large numbers of people was why don't we now sit down and talk about what's happened over the last 11 years, say never again to austerity, what do we need now, but what sort of society do we want to create coming out of the pandemic? And what we need is a paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift that happened under Attlee, unfortunately, it also happened under Thatcher as well. She shifted the way of thinking as well. So under Attlee, it was about social solidarity. It was basically about using the state effectively to, to build a society that catered for all people's needs and gave them a, a safety net as well. But it was also about using the state to transfer power and wealth. And the transfer of wealth was not just about wages. It wasn't just about social security. It was also about public ownership too. That was the paradigm shift. When Thatcher came in in the late 70s into the 80s, she shifted the paradigm shift back into individualism rather than solidarity. She shifted it into private ownership rather than public ownership. And she shifted it, I think, also into uh, that, that phrase she used, no such thing as society. She destroyed the bonds of community as much as possible. And what came out of the pandemic was a discussion that I wanted to bring together all those people who started talking about where do we go from here. I wanted to try and get them under one roof, under one Zoom, basically, um, to say about, well, what is the sort of society? And the phrase then that Boris Johnson and others were using was about build back better. And I said, I don't really want to build back. I don't want to go back. What we've got to do is claim the future, a new future, with a paradigm shift. So then what came out of that was bringing together large numbers of policy experts in different fields with campaigners uh, and others so that it was the concept of praxis where you put theory and practice together so that we had the ideas linked to the action and in that way you start creating the potential for a new society. And the paradigm shift is what's come out of it is a view that through the pandemic one of the lessons is first of all we need each other and actually, we care for each other as well. We do. There's no doubt about that. Then also, there's a role, a vital role for the state at every level, local, regional, national, etc. But the paradigm is about actually people deserve a, what we describe as universal basic services. Everyone deserves to have a decent roof over their heads. Everyone deserves to have free education. Everyone deserves to make sure they have the NHS and the social care that they need. Everyone deserves to have a decent job. Anyone deserves to live in a decent environment. All of those basic um, universal services and provisions are needed, but also it has to be based upon has to be based upon a social solidarity where we're working together. And that is the role of the state. And it is actually best provided through public ownership. And it has to be done on the base of a sense of community. But then on top of it, the other thing that came out of all those, what I, as you know, what I organised was a whole series of panel discussions where literally hundreds of people come in. There'd be a panel of experts and campaigners talking and then others would contribute. And that then we built those into a whole series of events. We had about 24 different panels working. 
and then I got them to produce policy papers and they put that all into one booklet. And it was like uh, it was like a plan for action for the future. That that was the whole point of it, really. And lots of ideas, you know, yeah. guaranteed yeah. jobs, sort of thing, you know, yeah. making sure that people had a jobs guarantee, making sure there was a minimum guaranteed income. Mm. The other issue that came up was wiping out people's debt as well. All mm. of those issues I thought were really fundamentally important. So, yeah, it was an exercise worth doing, I think. And the idea was to try and stimulate the debate and bring people together so they work mm. together. And where there were campaigns going on at the time, supporting those campaigns, but were there any camp gaps where there needed to be a campaign bringing people together to do that? Yeah, that's great. It's great to see that you've still got that vision and that fire uh, for the future. I want to ask you about the future for the left later, but I'm going to bring Tom in now, John, because I know he's um, he's calmed down now. The beginning, the beginning when we were talking to each other, he got a bit overwrought. I did get a bit overwrought. I I said that that's important though in socialism that you keep that fire burning, as Tony Benn used to talk about. But I'll hand over to Tom now. Thanks, yeah, John. You're going to, yeah, John. You don't have to interrupt me, Tom, as well, if I'm rambling. On yeah, right. uh, that's right, John. John, um, it's interesting listening to you talk about the pressures of being an MP, and uh, I, I almost feel guilty almost to, to talking about other things really now. But um, I, I know I picked that up from Thelma as well that she how hard it was to to just keep on top of all the work that. But anyway, let's let's move on. I'll try and take you out of that realm for a minute, if I can, John. I know that you've been. Um, on the left of politics since time began, really, and and uh, some and you've flown you've flown close to the wind in a lot of instances, and got yourselves into a few yourself into a few sticky situations along the way, um, and and hats off to you, John, for sticking with it and and still ploughing on. Uh, I, you know, something I know I I would have fallen at the first first fence. What I want to ask you about, John, if I can, is. I don't come from a political background. Um, I, I look at things in quite a naive way, I think, sometimes, when I talk, start to talk to our guests, and I think, oh, right, I didn't see that bit, and da da da, da. But there are some things that I think, um, you know, like when I hear politicians talking, and you as well, the patience and this kind of da-da-da of it all, and you're thinking, well... A lot of young people in this country and, and a lot of idealistic old people as well are just thinking, for God's sake, you know, we need to... This is clearly wrong. We need to change it. Let's not mess about. And um, uh, and I want to ask you about the hard left, John, and what is... You know, I mean, we, we got accused of being the hard left from 2015 onwards... And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I'm not the hard left. I'm just a, a nice bloke who's trying to make a bit of a difference here. And I, I don't think it's very much hard about me at all. Um, and I, where are you at with the hard left, John? I mean, you, you... You should never allow your opponents to get away with depicting you in their own terms, OK? And I'll give you an example. In the, I was on the Greater London Council. I was Deputy Leader and Chair of Finance on the GLC when Ken Livingston was leader. And throughout that period, the media developed the um, concept of us being the loony left. It's a disgraceful term, but that we were the loony. And why were we described in that way? 
is because we were revolutionary policies like reducing the fares on the buses, you know, and making, <laughs> making sure that if a council issued a contract to a company, that they'd recognise trade unions and pay a decent wage. Um, we were loony left because we recognised the rights and funded, as others wouldn't do, um, organisations that represented the LBGT community. We were loony left because we actually wanted to, we campaigned for police accountability, particularly in terms of their relationship with the, the black and ethnic minority community. All of those things, we were depicted as loony left for that, you know. And it's interesting, most of those policies now are mainstream policies that you could not challenge. In fact, you would be seen, it would be seen as outrageous if you did. So in some ways, once they they moved on from that and had to find another depiction, so then that depiction was the hard left. So the way that you challenge that is basically, so, well, what do you mean by that? And tell me what you disagree with about what we're saying in terms of our policies. And it's interesting. So <laughs> Telmer will tell you in the, in the manifestos in 17 and in 19, we market tested a polling, you know, in terms of the policies of, of the, that. And when we presented them to people as individual policies, um, overwhelming support. And, you, you know, when you do polling like that, particularly focus group polling, qualitative polling, you make sure you create individual groups of different political um, support, if you like. So when we, when we had polling conservative voters on our policies, we were finding that there was overwhelming support on large numbers of them. But then as soon as you mentioned they were Labour, that was support. <laughs> so when they, when they then accuse you of being hard left, I always say to people, well, let's talk about what you mean like that. Tell me what you disagree with. And I go through a number of policies and then literally that sort of image then disappears to a large extent. In winning that argument, the thing for us though on the left, and this is what... I've really had a beer in my bonnet about. We've got to be, with, with the media mostly in the control of effectively oligarchs now, people who, whose power we want to shift away from them and give it to people, and whose wealth we want to tax so that we can use those resources to fund the public services that people need. Of course, they're going to do everything they possibly can to prevent us going into power. And we've got to recognise that. So what we have to do is do exactly what you're doing, which is create our own media to get the message across. But also when you're dealing with the, with the, the mainstream media as well, you know, you have to be, to be frank, you have to be professional about it as well. So that means when you go on there, making sure that you're properly briefed. And then secondly, making sure you know their techniques that they're going to use on you that you can then counter. And you're as good as your last failure at, at 10 past eight on the two Today programme, basically. And Thelma will tell you, when, we, when, when we're on the front bench, you know, we do a news round of sort of nine to 11 interviews in one morning. You go from one to the other, but you slip up on one and you'd be really kicking yourselves because you'd feel you'd let everyone down. But you learn from those lessons. And a lot of the, curiously enough, I've just come from the officers meeting the socialist campaign group. And we've just been talking about, because we've had a, a great, uh, just a fantastic bunch of new left generation MPs that have come in in 2019, these youngsters. And we've just been talking about um, just having a bit more media training for them so that 
not that they change what they're saying, but they know the techniques of how to get that across when you're dealing with largely a media that is owned by owned by oligarchs who are desperately trying to avoid you going into government. Would you and say, then, just coming in on there, John, but would you say that that was a bit of an Achilles heel in, in the past? You know, the with the the Labour front bench MPs. I mean, I know they worked the socks off and they were always there fronting the media. Uh, but knowing the strategies, knowing the techniques, do you think that maybe was something that 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 did that did uh, inhibit uh, kind of the comms that we had uh, that people well, were didn't feel confident enough or just felt on on the defensive all the time. It was initially, I think, uh, because it's experience more than anything else. Mm. Mm. Um, but we remember, we did provide quite a bit of media training, mm. which was quite good. Mm. But also, when you're doing the media training as well, what you don't want to do is rough, rub off the good edges as well. Mm. Because sometimes, mm. you, sometimes when I watch interviews now, you think, oh, God, that's just a media training technique to avoid answering the question. Just answer the question. And then if they try to interrupt you, manage the interruption, that sort of thing. So I think I think initially, yeah, but then it was just all, all experience, etc. And we all, you know, it's so easy to screw up on those things as well. Justin Schlossberg um, uh, from um, the media group did a lot of monitoring about um, how um, our front bench were treated on the media. And they, I didn't realise he did this, but they monitored one interview I did on Newsnight with Kirsty Walk. And I was interviewed, and I think the calculation was I was interrupted 24 times. Yeah, yeah. And then absolutely. Amber Rudd came on after me and got interrupted, I think, once. And it just... Mm. And I don't blame mm. Kirsty Walk for that. That's just the style that, that Newsnight had at the time. But it, it, and, but it just gave an indication of the sort of mechanisms mm. that can be done. Mm. And the... Th you just sometimes, sometimes you, you you can overcome it, and sometimes you can't. It, but it's, see, I, John, I, 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 I slightly, I've had a couple of discussions around this on this podcast. Mm. I slightly disagree with with you and Thelma on this, really, in that I think that the the mainstream media is something that to be avoided, not not to <laughs> not to. Uh, not yeah. don't learn how to deal with it. Just tell them that if they want to know what we think, then they've got to ask on our terms, which will be polite and give us time to answer, etc., uh, etc. Et and if they don't follow those rules, they can sod off. Uh, excuse well, Tom, my French, a, but no, no, you're right, Tom. To a certain extent, we were doing that. To a certain extent, um, remember, I think the figures now about. 40% of people now get their information via the internet rather than the mainstream media. We've got two problems, haven't we? One is the written media is virtually out of our control. And, and even you take, we've got the Morning Star, the only daily newspaper really on the left. You've got the Guardian, which actually I think was more damaging than some of the, even the right-wing papers because it gave the impression of being liberal, supportive, et cetera. But actually at one point in time, I had this, a discussion with the Guardian editor because on a couple of platforms, I said they're more dangerous than the Daily Mail. And I literally, I, eventually we had some sort of relationship where we had a bit more access and fairness, but their comment page at one point was just appalling. Owen Jones was the only one there that actually gave us any, you know, any sensible 
um, balance coverage whatsoever, but it was absolutely appalling. So the Guardian was no ally of ours, quite the reverse. But then also the rest of it is straightforward, to be honest, just owned by oligarchs, capitalist media, and to totally opposed to us. But interestingly enough, what we try to do is create the weather ourselves so that they'd have to cover some of the issues that we, 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 we put out there. And in some ways, we did our best to shape it. So you try and do that as professionally as you can. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is, well, the broadcast media. Um, even public service broadcasting at the BBC, which I wholeheartedly, all through my life, I've campaigned through public, for public service broadcasting. I'm secretary of the National Union of Journalists Group in Parliament. We've campaigned on the licence fee. We've campaigned about the investment of resources in journalism in particular. But even there, what's happened there is the BBC has had cut after cut after cut. So you now have fewer journalists operating for the journals, from the BBC. What, so then what they then do with, with doing less and less of their own reportage, they then take their headlines from the national daily press. And so therefore that simply replicates what's in a lot of the national press, which is in opposition to us. So you have to somehow manage that professionally. And that means using their programs as best you can to get your message across, even though you know there'll be an air, an air of opposition that actually government ministers and other or Tory ministers and Tory representatives won't necessarily get. You just have to, that's the reality of life in, in the society that we live. So you have to cope with it in some form. The good thing about it, though, is what we did is we, certainly up until the 2017 election, we used the national media as best we could, we try to use live broadcast media because on live broadcast media, usually you can get your message across. If it's not live, you can be edited out. That's the part of the problem. So live broadcast media. Then what we also did, we had, I think, a huge group of young, creative people who worked on social media so well for us, really. We were ahead of the game using all different aspects. Then also, Jeremy reinvented word of mouth as a form of political communication. All those rallies all around the country were absolutely critical for getting the message across. And they attracted thousands who then communicated the ideas on. Thelma and I, every other Saturday, it was knackering, wasn't it? We were touring around doing town meetings every other Saturday all around the country, inviting people in to talk about the economic policies that people were needed within their particular town or area and the ideas that they had that we then fed back as well. So that word of mouth was absolutely critical for us. The difference between 2017 and 2019 is that we had a simple narrative in 17, which was anti-austerity. Brexit came along, so that knocked us off course. But in addition to that, we never really got a clear narrative developed between 17 and 19. But also the Tories learned their lesson from 17. The Tories between 17 and 19 invested millions in social, their social media operation, not just from the Tory party, but from third party campaigners. So lots of organisations were set up, things like Capitalist Worker and others. They were set up largely using Tory funds to attack us and particularly to character assassinate Jeremy Corbyn. So it's interesting, I've been raising with the Electoral Commission um, because Open Democracy, the group, uh, Peter Gagan, the journalist, has done a, um, investigations into these third party campaigners, particularly during the general election period, and the way in which sums of money, they didn't have to declare, they were small sums of money that were being spent 
below the financial limit, but they were being spent, and I think coordinatedly being spent, basically to attack Labour and then also to promote the Tories. Can you remember, Thelma, during that general election when the Tories launched that fact check? They, they did a Oh, fact yes, check. of course they did. Great. Yeah, they, they also, did. They also did a website, the Labour Manifesto. Yeah, People thought I they were going to the Manifesto. Yeah. So in those two years, they they invested so much money on social media, they caught mm. up with us. That was the problem. Mm. That's the lesson for the left now. We've always got to be ahead of the game. Yeah, so Help. just just coming in on that, John, you, you mentioned these uh, the new generation of young left MPs that are in Parliament now. And I'm really sad that, I've, I've, that there's some of them. I've met some of them, but not all of them. Mm. So for you, what... What can we learn from what the Tories did? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, it, they, it, they were successful. And so for the future of the left, what can we learn from those experiences? And how do you see the okay. future of the left? Because my, my thoughts are it has to be a coalition on the left. I, I, I just feel as a movement that there has to be a coalition. But I, I'm really interested to know, because we've not spoken for well a bit a short while but we, we haven't really talked about this um on your thoughts about what how it could go and how it could be for the left the first thing you start off with is what have we got that the toys haven't toys have got the money they've got the ownership of large tranches of the media we know that they've also got an awful lot of um influence and power which could be quite threatening in terms of people's jobs and their livelihoods, etc., what they haven't got is they haven't got what we've got, which is a mass movement. You know, we are a movement, we're a huge movement. You know, not just the Labour Party. I mean, the trade union movement. I think all those progressive organisations, whether they be the Renters Union, whether it be Extinction Rebellion, whether they be Black Lives Matter people campaigning, whether they be the the Me Too, the anti-misogyny campaigns, it's always haven't got that. On the pro I'm talking about the, the progressive front that we have. And what, our, what we've got is the potential of a mass movement of people. That's the first thing, which cannot be withstood if it's mobilised effectively. That's the first thing. The second thing is, with that mass movement comes all those creative minds. Absolutely, the creativity that we have amongst working class people and all these different people in, in these different campaigns and different movements, the Tories haven't got that. They, one, they haven't got it at any scale, but this massive creativity, I'm, and I, especially amongst the younger generation that's coming up, it's just absolutely staggering. And that, that permeates not just direct campaigning and political discussions, etc. It permeates culture as well in all its forms. So I think we've got to, that our job now is to make sure that we're encouraging and developing that mass social movement and then cohering it into actually a, a political force again. It's interesting, you know, I've been, I'm doing this, um, I'm, I'm starting a, a series of podcasts on the history of working class struggle in this country. And we're, <laughs> we're starting off with the, the early struggles of um, the the medieval into the Tudor period, the Peasants' Revolt, oh, Jack oh, Cage. Brilliant. Oh, we'll tune yeah. into that. We'll tune into that. Are you going to invite Selena Todd then, uh, John? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Selena, you know, did the um, her book on the history of the welfare state is phenomenal. Yeah. But there's so many... It's interesting, really. Uh, there's some, so many periods of... 
there isn't a generation that has, has gone by without some form of working class revolt or rebellion. It's quite remarkable. A lot of it not necessarily taught as thoroughly as we'd like, because it's still, I know it's an obvious thing to say, but it's, it, you know, it's still kings and queens that we seem to feature on still. But uh, there's a lot more uh, social history being taught now, which is fantastic. But if you look at the history of class struggle in this country, it it is always about it is all about the mass of people just standing up and saying, "I've had enough. I'm not taking this anymore," and using the the strength of their numbers, but then also their creativity in the way they communicate their ideas. You know, and I just think we've got to remind ourselves of that. And that's the period we're now going into. And the new generation of Labour MPs that are coming through, incredibly articulate. Uh, no, you well, you've interviewed some of them. There's the, the there's the generation that came through in '17, the Re Becky Long Baileys, the, the Clive Lewis's, the Richard Bergens. Then you've got this new generation of Bell Ribeiro Addy, Zara Sultana, Apsana Begin, you know, Nadia Whittam. Unbelievable, really. And also. They're media savvy as well. You watch Zara Sultana on any program. Watch, watch the way they communicate. Bell Ribeiro Addy. They're media savvy, and they don't take any any shit from anyone when it comes down to that sort of thing. They'll they'll fight their corner incredibly effectively, and that's what I'm enthused about. Really, I, it just gives me such hope and optimism for the future that that movement is being built on the ground. The issue for us, though, is the point. Tom would make, I'm sure, is half the time without podcasts like yourselves, we wouldn't know it was going on. Yeah. You know, at the moment, there's industrial action taken across right the way across the country on different areas and different sectors of industry. Mm. Not a not a single report in any, mm. unless it's to condemn it. There's not a single report in any of the real mass media mm. about what's going on. Mm. So no, I'm I'm quite enthused about the potential that there is there. But you're right, it is about learning learning the lessons of past failures in which we can then make sure we have future successes. Mm. John, yeah. can I... I think, oh, sorry, Sam. Yeah, I was just going to say, though, you were talking about uh, success of collective action. I was going to uh, link seamlessly then, Tom, to your... You want to talk to John about some football, well, don't you? Well, that you uh, you're, well, you're I, a... <laughs> I do, but I want to get this... Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this. I've got, John, that, that was such a phenomenal thing that happened... Uh, from 2015 onwards, and so many of us got so enthused. I mean, I've mm. waited. Well, I'd given up, to be fair, John. Um, I, I, I wasn't interested in people saying nothing, and suddenly there you were. You know, a few of you really just stand up, start saying something that actually meant something, and you captured a huge amount of people interested. And I think we're a bit gutted, John, that, that we're not carrying on. And, and, and don't tell me that we are, because we're not. It's not the same. We need, we need you back out there leading this movement. And, and, well, and it's not just me. It's, there's bloody millions of us, mate. Yeah, I think these things, if you look back on history, these things come in waves. And the the wave that we had between 2015 and 19 um, hit you know hit the hit the the rocks if you like with the 2019 general election, and there's naturally going to be a bit of a 
a pullback and the, the wave receding a bit. I think now what we've got to do is build for the next wave. And I think it is coming. And I'm what surprised me is how quickly it's coming um, because of people don't seem to be in any way resistant to standing up, as I said, and saying, I'm not taking it anymore and I'm going to fight back. So I just feel... We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg reported, but I just feel there's a sort of a ferment of resistance that building at the moment. And I'm particularly think I'm, my own view is that that is coming from uh, quite a young generation mm. issue. Therefore, and this is where um, this sounds like patronizing. I don't mean to be, but the issue, therefore, for for the, so the gray beards, if you like, of, uh, amongst us men and women <laughs> and older generation or whatever, is to make sure that we feed into that movement the lessons that, that we've learnt during this recent period in particular. Um, and the, the key lesson at the moment is uh, not to allow any disillusionment or, or to set in because you've got to encourage people. So look, this new wave is coming. You've got to be ready to be part of it and you've got to be able to contribute in your different ways. And people can contribute in different ways. And sometimes it's like the discussion we've just had about the media. Sometimes it is about talking to the, the youngsters coming through and saying, actually, you, have you thought about doing this in the media? Have you thought about a bit of media training? Or here's some advice about which media we think is effective, which isn't, that sort of thing. So you can blend all those lessons lessons in. But I am, I am incredibly impressed with just the level of commitment, organisation and skill that the uh, some of the younger new left, <clears throat> I'm trying to refer to them as the new generation left that's coming through now, and I think that will be inspirational. And I think the the role for for people like me is to give every encouragement we possibly can from them, any advice that we possibly can, but recognise they they can tell us to stuff that advice, you know, with, <laughs> yeah. who are we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and do that with a bit of respect, you know. I can't, I quite the I, I like the idea of some of them actually saying, "Well, you know, thank you very much for that, but you didn't really <laughs> we, we are going to win." You yeah, know, that sort of yeah, thing. yeah. I think it's quite good though for our generation of baby boomers, though, who've had it all compared to what's happening yeah. to the younger generation now. We've had it all, um, to for some of us to actually stand up and say, "Yeah, we realise that." And, and we know, we know that we can support, but we have taken for granted many of the things that you no longer can, like student, you know, they've got student debt, they can't afford to own their own home, uh, you, you know, some of them are food banks, oh, you know, it's tougher. kind of, it's so much tougher. And uh, and, and I, I feel privileged that I'm now working with that younger generation and yeah. as part of that movement and change. And uh, I, I've got that... Uh, you know that euphoria back i think because of it um and that optimism um and uh, yeah. i think there is a there is a positive brighter future for the left i i agree with you john and i think we three people like us in our generation have a responsibility to to support that uh moving forward um but 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 i'm not going to let you get away tom you you want to you want to ask about 
about um, John and his and his football team and who he supports because Tom doesn't even know who, who no. you support for your football. Come on, we're gonna let's get on. To, <laughs> let's get on. There's been lots well, happening with football. We'll very this briefly week. talk about football, John. Yeah, if that's before we okay. leave. It. <laughs> um, obviously, it's been a, a momentous week and a lot of people trying to make political advantage out of it, which is really. Uh, made me angry. I've had a bit of an angry week, really, John. No, normally, I'm <laughs> had to I'm, calm him down at the beginning, actually, over this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a therapy session off uh, Thelma in the first <laughs> section. Um, thank God. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, John. Who, who do, do you enjoy watching football? I'm. Um, I was born in Liverpool. Right. And my my family. Of I'm Liverpool just waiting to hear which way this is going to go. John doesn't yeah, know well, who I support. I, I, I remember when you went over to Liverpool. I remember when you went over to Madrid with well, your brother, John. Do you remember that? That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, my family are Liverpool fanatics. Right. So there's only there's only three teams in, in that area, which is Liverpool and Liverpool Reserves and Tranmere Rovers. <laughs> my That's my, just lost that, us another hundred listeners. <laughs> My my cousin Pauline, Pauline Roy, her, her late husband, is a very strong Everton supporter and even had blue flowers on his coffin. <laughs> she's just sent me, There's an if people get a chance, Google it. She's just sent me a video of a poem about Everton Football Club. And it is so, it is a brilliant poem. It is absolutely brilliant. It's a... It's a poem about it's a poem of gratitude and thanking all the different people who participate in the club, set to a bit of music and all the rest, and a really good video. So if you look at that, and that just brings it all home, really, about what this last week was all about. Really, it was about you know profiteering greed has taken over football, and the oligarchs control it, and the oligarchs control the companies. But it's the point that we've been making about the masses and mass movement. Even the oligarchs, with all their wealth and all their power, couldn't withstand an uprising of football supporters, mostly working class. So it's a good indication. I was on Peston last night and I tried to use the question about the Super League to say, look, Johnson was forced into acting. That's what he mm. did. He's not a political fool. He saw mm. an opportunity and he was forced into it. But if he can do it on football, why can't he do yeah, it on football? Exactly. Fight? I was making that point in the beginning, John. Yeah, yeah. I was. What about what about you know child poverty? You know, let's have collective exactly. action. Let's have him moving in on that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So what, what we saw on the Super League is we saw a, in microcosm a version of working class struggle, mm. class struggle. Yeah. You saw working class people telling the oligarchs, telling the profiteers, the greedy, that they're not having it. And they won, you know, and it just it was an example, analogy for me of what class struggle is all about, where working people exercise their collective power to prevent the greedy owners, the, the bosses, the oligarchs, you, all of them from destroying something that working people hold closely. The issue for us, though, is Thelma will know that we announced policies in December um, November and December 2019, um, and Jeremy, I think it was up at Newcastle Ground, and they announced them about fans owning, supporters owning the clubs and supporting supporters' trust to enable that to happen, and also making sure that, that 
even in advance of that, we insist, we brought legislation forward so that supporters would occupy board positions as well. I'm a member of a group called the Spirit of Shankly. It's a group of Liverpool supporters, and they're the ones who campaigned against the a few years ago the increase in prices on the ground um, that the new owners were bringing in and won. And they've linked up on the international prices as well. So it just shows you how you can, how you can mobilise mm. and how you can mm. be effective. But it mm. also exposed just what has happened to, you know, the the the, the game in terms of, you know, just profiteering. Yeah. Support. Yeah. I'm also, I'm also a, 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 I'm a season ticket holder at Hayes and Yedin, my local club, and all the rest. <laughs> Um, which again, what's we the, what's um, the standard of football like at Hayes and Yedin, John? Well, Hayes, we were two. There were two separate clubs up until a few years ago. One was Hayes. There was I was a supporter of Hayes, and Yedin was uh, a, a, a separate club. And um, what I used to do, funnily enough, I'd, I'd watch Hayes at home, and then when they were away, Yedin would usually be at home. So I'd watch both. But I was a Hayes supporter, but financially, it was difficult times. Hayes came within about four places of going into the Football League about oh, 10 years oh, ago. Wow. And Hayes has always been um, a club for discovering talent and selling it on, you know, Cyril Regis, people like that, you know. Um, the, I, in some ways, this, the standard of football, I think, is really good. And their face, they, they dipped. After the merger, they dipped for financial reasons. Now they're fighting their way back. But the most important thing for me is that they have a huge community network of youngsters playing as well. Joseph, my son, played for them for a short while. And it, it, what's good about it is real community grassroots football. I used to, when, um, when they were little, I'd referee a few matches when I was little, but I gave it up after, because the parents can be quite aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, oh, as a head teacher, I can remember that. Well, <laughs> Well, on one occasion, <laughs> on one occasion, I allowed a goal, which I think, which I think actually, I think it was wrong. I actually admit that now. But some bloke shouted out from the sidelines, one of the, the supporters of uh, one of the teams, that's the last effing time I vote Labour. So after that, <laughs> my referee in days came to an end. <laughs> no, it can be quite scary being a referee, I think, when the parents are on the touchline. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd, I'd want to set up a working group on the decision I'd made. <laughs> well, it's been so great to have you, John. Um, I, I, I said to Tom, you'll be able to talk about anything. Uh, uh, there, there is one thing we haven't talked about, Thelma. Go on. Um, uh, the 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 music and the trombone. Oh yeah, yeah, we didn't. I was going to do that at the beginning, and I forgot. Yeah, the, yeah. now let's I, just get that one. Uh, in yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. A good selling. Yeah, point. I saw you on Zoom. <laughs> I saw you on Zoom a few months back. I think it was over Christmas, yeah. and you were having lessons on the trombone. So how's it going, John? Just before we finish, an update. Uh, how's it going? How's it going? Well. The neighbours have stopped petitioning, <laughs> I think. Uh, was it Twinkle, was it Twinkle, it. Twinkle Little Star we were on, or what was it? Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, 
I tried to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but everyone thought it was something else. I can't remember. It. Well, you were, you just have to say you were improvising, John. That's what people do. Improvisation. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the cop out, isn't it? What sort of trombone do you play? Jazz trombone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. I love, what happened was is that I've I've always um, I've always wanted to play a musical instrument, but never had the time. But also, when it came down to um, I thought trumpet, but I'm not dexterous enough in my fingers. But I thought with trombone, I could do the slide thing better and all the rest of it. But actually, the trombone is a real work of art. I love it. I do. I have a weekly lesson for 45 minutes off a young man who's a trombonist in 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 the in the army. He te- he's a brilliant teacher. He's got his music degree and all the rest. He's a young guy. He's really good and very patient with me. He's just wonderful. You know, he keeps on saying very good and excellent. I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> I do 45 minutes and he sets me tasks for the following week. And then I, pra- I try and do half an hour's practice a day. I've, this week has been pretty grim because I had the finance bill. So I haven't had much time. But I try and do uh, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes a day as well, practice. He gives me things to practice, and then we go through them the next time. But also, I couldn't read music, so I'm now reading music oh, as well. Oh, great. So I can't tell you how much enjoyment I get mm. out of it, but I'm, I'm dreadful. Hey, are we going to have a tune before we finish? Come on. <laughs> I do the scale, and mm. people will be in... I do the scale. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I bet nobody expected this on this episode of the podcast with John oh, McDonnell. This, this is just, <laughs> yeah, your, your podcast will go down. I was just going to say the numbers are going to go through the roof for this. <laughs> go on. I try and do a scale, but mm-hmm. I do it badly. I tell you, that's a lot of effort. <laughs> that's brilliant, John. I can't tell you if, that. That's if, a I really, were, if I was a with you, John, I'd give you one of my old well done stickers I had when I was in school. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know why, do, do you know what ended my musical career? Go on. No, I said, I did a thing at the Boys Brigade last year and I told them the story. The local Boys Brigade are really lovely and they still got a bit of a musical thing. And I said to them, well, what happened was that when I was eight or nine in school, I went to St. Mary's school. And it was Irish Catholic mm-hmm. nuns, that sort of thing, you know, typical mm-hmm. school, whatever, Catholic upbringing. And in the class, you do a music lesson and you'd be given a tambourine or, or a triangle and things like that, you know. And I always used to stand next to the strongest boy in school. He was my mate, right? Looked after me, that sort of thing. It was a rough old time at times. And I get the triangle so from Sister Cecily. Her name was Sister Cecily because she was an opera singer before she became a nun, really lovely voice. And she was named after the patron saint of music. So I get the triangle. And my mate takes the triangle off me. He's the strongest boy in school. He straightened it. <laughs> but at the, end of, at the end of the lesson, I had to hand in a straightened triangle. Now, you might think... That that might cause a problem. It causes an even bigger problem in the hands. Can you imagine a straightened triangle in the hands of an Irish nun? <laughs> <laughs> That's well, hilarious. That ended my musical career.
until I took up the trombone. Oh, 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 that's a wonderful story, John. <laughs> well, thanks for the recital. Yeah. But, but I, I would say don't give up your day job, you know. <laughs> You've destroyed me now, Still, I've absolutely destroyed all my ambitions now. Got... Hang in there, John. You've got a lot of potential. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, no, thank you. Yeah, and, and you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, John. And uh, thank you to all our listeners. It's been a, a brilliant podcast. Really enjoyed making it. And um, please subscribe. And most of all, please tell your friends. Uh, the more people that listen to our media, that's the less time they've got to listen to their media. Okay, uh, thank you, Thelma, for helping make the podcast be my co-host. As always, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thanks, John. Thanks, Tom. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll leave you with the words of the late, great Bill Shankly. The socialism I believe in is everybody working for the same goal and everybody having a share in the rewards. That's how I see football. That's how I see life. Solidarity. Solidarity.